Welcome back to the Human Exception. This week, we delve into the world of scary stories, their history, and why we love them. And Nathan tells us about some of Jehovah's Witnesses' propaganda against everyone's favorite holiday. As always, expect foul language, and let's get ready for another Human Exception. Look at that. Hold on. I have to post the appropriate GIF in our thing because we are talking about spooky things and it is time for the ooky spooky. I'm a mountain biking vampire witch from the future. Mm -hmm. Excellent. (laughs) It just amuses me. (laughs) I love it. That's great. Have you seen that clip? No. Oh my god, it's so good. Katya gets on the bicycle. I don't know why they have a bicycle in their green screen thing. And she's like, I'm a mountain biking vampire witch in the future. And then Trixie comes in with this weird, like, crappy dollar store witch room. And Katya points at it and goes, oh, that looks like a rake. Fuck my pussy with a rake, mom. And then they just, Katya was like on a bender. It was wild. I love it. Oh, excellent. Ugh. This is where we're at today. It's Sunday. It's spooky time. Spooky <laughs> time. Howie had an idea that we talk about horror stories and why people like them. And, uh, Hell yeah. Yeah. So we figured we'd do some stuff to relate to that. I don't even know what Nathan ended up doing. Like, I did the <laughs> thing on, like, sent my history of horror stories, and I know you did a thing about why we like getting scared. I don't know what Nathan did. Yeah. <laughs> so. I was going to be like the other the other day I was trying to figure out what to do and Kayla was like we'll do the satanic panic and so mm. I started looking into it and because I didn't do anything yesterday and I did everything this morning um I took about 10 minutes looking through the satanic panic I was like this is a whole fucking it's a episode. whole thing so okay, but I'm I not specifically to just do the halloween part of satanic panic that's why, because it's massive. I mean, but everything, but it like it splits off into everything and connects to everything. So I couldn't just do <laughs> the Halloween part. So I took a step back, <clears throat> and Kayla, you were like, you made a joke about, oh, there's probably a JW thing, and I was like, yeah, that probably is. So I was <laughs> able to put something together from that in nice in the time. So all right. Sweet. Okay, well, why don't we start with that? <laughs> okay. Yeah! <clears throat> so. Uh, I actually pulled up an article on their website um, oh. from uh, September of 2003. So this is 10 years old. Okay. Uh, sorry, 20 years old. 13. Oh, okay. I was like, ooh, math. My brain. Um, 
called The Truth About Halloween. Oh, God. <laughs> this is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to read this article to you. And every in every article, they always have little like side boxes with, you know, additional information. And okay. it's really the additional information that kind of got me that kind of got me a little bit. Um, it, it's very like picky, choosy, although it is mm-hmm. not incorrect. So, okay. <laughs> except for except for this one piece in um the that that they use from the Encyclopedia of American Folklore, I cannot confirm nor deny because I could not find a copy of it um to to corroborate. So, um <clears throat> So the truth about Halloween Is Halloween celebrated where you live? In the United States and Canada, Halloween is widely known and celebrated every year on October 31st. Halloween customs, though, can be found in many other parts of the globe. In some places, holidays are celebrated that, although named differently, share similar themes, contact with the spirit world, involving the spirits of the dead, fairies, witches, and even the devil and demon angels. Demon angels. Okay, you know what? That is that's that's pretty accurate. Okay. Um, Okay. Demons are considered fallen angels in some some spheres. Um, So this is where they say, "See the box on celebrations like Halloween worldwide." So the box is Halloween has generally been regarded as an American holiday. Yet this celebration has become popular in many parts of the world. Additionally, there are other festivities that are like Halloween in that they celebrate the existence and activity of spirit creatures. Shown here are some of the popular holidays like Halloween and around like Halloween around the globe. Interesting fact, God and, and angels are considered to be spirit creatures. They are grouped in on that. Um, so, North America, Day of the Dead. South America, I am going to butcher this. Kawa Squatch- <laughs> uh Okay. Europe, Day of the Dead and, vari- and variations of Halloween. Um, Africa, the Dance of the Hooded Igungun. Um, immediately, I was like, what the fuck is that? So, I have a little yeah. information on that. Um and in Asia, the Bon Festival. So, um, the Igungun... like like Asia. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, that's not like a dozen countries or anything it's with not completely like different cultural identities and religions. So many. <laughs> um. So, back to the article. Personally, you may not believe in supernatural spirits. You might simply view taking part in Halloween and similar celebrations as a way to have fun and teach your children to explore their imagination. Many people, though, regard these celebrations as harmful for the following reasons. So, number one, Halloween explains the Encyclopedia of American Folklore. Now, I have not been able to 
find well i've been able to find the book i have not been able to read the chapter where this is from so uh is integrally related to the prospect of contact with the spiritual with spiritual forces many of which threaten or frighten i that's pretty accurate i think based on the origins i yeah context is different but i think that's the yeah yeah. General basis okay. behind the original, like Samhain and like Hollow's Eve and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Likewise, many celebrations like Halloween have pagan origins and are deeply rooted in ancestor worship. Even <laughs> today, people around the world <laughs> use these days to make contact with supposed spirits of the dead. That's just disrespectful <clears throat> the way they're putting that. They're basically like, oh, yeah, they think they can talk to their ancestors. I'm like, that yeah. culture, that, that cultural well, stuff has been around forever. Yeah. Nothing needs to be, nothing can be above Jehovah, though. That's the thing. Oh, exactly. well, my bad. That's why you uh, can't have uh, birthdays. Yeah. Because then you're celebrating yourself. I, that, that breaks my brain a little bit. Not yeah. going to lie. It, it loops back into the idol worship situation of like the Ten Commandments. Even though they have this whole thing that is like when Jesus showed up and started preaching that basically the the Sermon on the Mount replaced everything and all of the rules from the Old Testament. So okay, they still like they still try and like do the whole brain like leap of fucking whatever to try and make it all make sense. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Um, their whole thing on birthdays is like, well, there was only ever two celebration birthday celebrations in the Bible and everyone fucking died because they were drunk and stupid. So um, that's Jeez. also another uh. leap. Anyway, moving on. Um <clears throat> Although Halloween has been viewed mainly as an American holiday, each year people in more and more countries have been adopting it. Many newcomers to the celebration, however, are unaware of the pagan origins of Halloween symbols, decorations, and customs, most of which are related to supernatural beings and occult forces. Okay, so uh, wait a second. They say that, what, the only, what, what was it, that God and everything are also spirit beings, so... I don't know why I'm trying to point out the inherent hypocrisy in a religion. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it just, it makes me stop and go and sigh real hard. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, this one also has a see the box. Where did it come from? Ah. The origins of some Halloween customs and symbols. Vampires, werewolves, witches, zombies. These creatures have long been associated with e the evil spirit world. Candy. I, I can't wait to see what they say about this. Oh boy. The ancient, uh, the ancient Celts tried to appease wicked spirits with sweets. The church later encouraged celebrants to go from house to house on All Hallows' Eve, asking for food in return for a prayer for the dead. This custom eventually became Halloween's trick-or-treat. Wait, wait. Candy's evil now? <sighs> Candy's always evil. 
Um, <clears throat> costumes. The the Celts wore frightening masks that evil spirits would mistakenly think the wearers were spirits and would leave them alone. That's actually accurate. Um, mm-hmm. The church gradually amalgamated pagan customs with the feasts of all souls and all saints. Later, celebrants went from house to house wearing costumes of saints, angels, and devils. Um, and this last one is, is accurate. Uh, pumpkins. Carved candlelit turnips were displayed to repel evil right. spirits. To yeah. some, the candle and the turnip represented a soul trapped in purgatory. Later, carved pumpkins were more commonly used. Like, I don't... Uh, this, this is kind of just a history It's also easier to use, too, because you'd have to hollow out a fucking turnip. Right? I actually... Right. Already hollow, you just gotta get the seeds out. <laughs> uh, I didn't actually find anything on the candy portion um, when looking up, like, Samhain. Um, the costumes of the pumpkins, yeah. Like we've that even mentioned, I think we've... right to me because um, yeah it was about making because the spirit world like the realm between the worlds are supposed to be thin and then like yeah, yeah you're supposed to use the spirits yeah and and I did it just it they just sort of vaguely mentioned offerings and prayers for a better harvest because it was going to be yeah. fucking cold and we want that it's so interesting <laughs> how hand wavy they are about some of this yeah it's like you're not wrong i mean there is a history behind it but christmas was also a pagan ceremony so like really? oh yeah they they they, they lean like, into that too yeah yeah because mm-hmm. they don't celebrate christmas and they're like right. well christmas so is just another way of like of uh um christmas is just sun worship they actually have oh my god format. not a pine tree in our house <gasps> yeah <laughs> uh yes there is another article on on um you know the you'll have to do that one of, of christmas. yeah for christmas nathan's too yeah amazing uh number three thousands of wiccans who follow the ancient celtic rites still call halloween by the ancient name uh samhain and still consider it to be the most sacred night of the year Christians don't realize it, but they're celebrating our holiday with us. We like it. They did the newspaper USA Today when quoting a professed witch. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Good sources, uh, dudes. Great. Uh, celebrations like Halloween are in conflict with Bible teachings. The Bible warns there must never be anyone among you who practices divination, who is soothsayer, auger, or sorcerer who uses charms consult ghosts or spirits or calls up the dead well i will let the kid know (laughs) yeah yeah it's like okay well you know what just when the kids show up in their freddy krueger masks you can tell them all this yeah (laughs) in view of the (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) in view of the foregoing it is wise for you to know about the dark origins of halloween and similar celebrations Having this fuller understanding may move you to join many others who do not participate in these holidays. Uh, and that is the end of the article. Um, however, I found this one article from 59. Oh! 
that is no. that is Lysidier. And ah shit, what is it? Uh, uh, it oh, I don't have it. I don't have it up, but it was it was like a uh, a letter to the editor type thing from someone who wrote in. And it's definitely it definitely belongs on like our things that never happened. Um, but <laughs> this this writer was reader wrote in and was like turning the the Halloween trick or treaters back on them and like we had these kids come to our door and they said trick or treat and we're like we don't have candy but if you're interested you know when you're done your done your rounds we'll treat you to a Bible story and they're like we got our Bible ready and the we weren't sure the kids were going to come back but they did and then we read them Bible story and they were like this was the best treat ever and then they left oh like yeah, yeah no, that didn't happen that didn't happen that no <laughs> that mm-mm. so um I am going to move away from that whole thing because, like, obviously. Um, and I'm going to give you guys a short description and sort of an explanation of uh, the Igungun uh, Masquerade Dance. Oh, yeah. Because... That's super fucking cool. Um, <laughs> and. Oh, wow. That is like. One of the costumes that they had put together uh, or like one of the costumes that is, I, I assume, in a museum currently. Um, in regards to this. Uh, this dance. Uh, and so it is <clears throat> from a so the Yoruba peoples in the oil region of Nigeria. Um, it does have uh, so basically it is Igungun is a visible manifestation of the spirits of the departed um, who periodically revisit uh, revisit the human community for remembrance, celebration, blessings, etc. Um, it is a, a cultural tradition pra practiced by the Yoruba of West Africa, as well as their descendants in um, in the African diaspora uh, in Brazil, uh, in Cuba, in the Dominican Republic, Barbados, and in the U.S. So it's said that the spirits can constantly bless, protect, warn, and punish their earthly relatives depending, depending on how their relatives neglect or honor them. Interesting. <sighs> yeah. Um, so, it, I, this one, this one article, um, the one article that I'm reading from, this is like, pretty much verbatim. Um, the appearance of uh, Igungun is, uh, in a community is invariably accompanied by pomp and pageantry 
drumming and dancing, singing and celebration. Um, the festival goes on for several days um, and is used as a way to strengthen community, family bonds, etc. Just like any other holiday or celebration is. Yeah, it's really right? cool. Right. Yeah. Um, so the costumes are constructed, uh, are made from like disparate fabrics, uh, either locally woven um, or mm. industrially or like or manufactured. Um, they use metal, beads, leather, bones. Um, they might even use like reagents for uh, for rituals. Um, especially like if you're getting into places like like New Orleans, where you might have a mm. little more of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the fabrics that they use now are some of the best that you can buy. So some of them use damask, velvet, silk, uh, like Indian madras, printed cotton, um, just to like up the lavishness in the um i get it the more expensive it is the more you are honoring your ancestors give offering more to them um so yeah uh usually the masquerade performances are uh, accompanied by obviously swirling fabrics and colors uh intricate dance moves and body movements um and carefully orchestrated dance steps. Um, the last sentence of this says, at best, Igungun is both a fanciful parade and a concrete manifestation of the acrobatic displays, displays of spirit in motion. <clears throat> but it's really neat. Um, I was like, the first, when I was going through that list, I was like, there's got to be something really cool in here. Uh, yeah. And there was. <laughs> Thanks, oh my Church, gosh. for giving us something interesting to look at. That's not you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> Neat. And yeah. That's what I got. I love that, though. Yeah, where you just mm-hmm. you take this thing where it's like, don't do any of this because it's evil and the devil and arr, and instead we get a, a tiny culture lesson. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, then it's got to be good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whenever they tell you to not do something or ban something, you know it's something you should probably go and do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why banning right. books doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. All right, so like, yeah, what I did was I kind of looked at a history of scary stories, got a couple like summaries or like short ones that I can share as well. Oh yeah, um, hell yes. Start with that, and then you could explain why they're good. Let's do that. I hold on, I gotta grab this pillow. My back is killing me. No one told me this shit happens when you get old. I'm sure they did. I just don't think we listened. No, because you know when you're 20, you think you're invincible. So. Yep. And then we're proven very wrong. <laughs> and then everything breaks down. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So I gotta focus on like, orig- like some of the oldest stories that we have and like 
practical reasons why we tell them and how that's mm-hmm. changed. Hopefully I'm not crossing over onto your stuff too much. We probably will just a little bit. Mine's pretty short, but I, I'm very curious because the I stuck more with like the popularity of horror now kind of a thing and why we mm-hmm. like the brain behind it. So perfect. Most of my stuff's old, so that's good. <laughs> Yay. All right. So yeah, so like Holly suggested we kind of do something related to scary stories. And so it got me thinking about like what are the oldest stories that we have. Mm. Uh, like you know for as long as storytelling has existed as has the genre of horror fear is considered one of the basest human emotions and hp lovecraft is so frequently quoted as saying the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown Hmm. it's theorized that the reasons that humans began to tell stories was not just for entertainment but also as a way to pass on information sometimes for generations stories come in all shapes with the oldest being oral which includes poetry and song as humans have evolved, so have our means of storytelling. Some of the earliest recorded stories exist in pictures painted in caves by our ancestors. When we learned to, to read and write, stories began to get recorded in a more permanent record. Then came audio recording, then film, video games, you name it. If there is a medium humans have access to, we've used it to tell stories in some way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some of the oldest stories we know about come in the form of myth. Today, we think of myth mostly as entertainment but many of the myths that we know from ancient times explained how the world worked and often were spiritual or religious in nature tying to pagan gods or sacred spirits just like myths gave answers they also gave warnings the idea of telling children scary stories that keep them out of trouble is an ancient one don't cry wolf if there isn't one or else when one shows up no one will listen and you'll get gobbled up These are probably the earliest iterations of what we would call horror, stories designed to inspire fear. As as a human society evolved, by and large, the world we knew became safer and the average person more educated. Horror would evolve with us, a constant distorted reflection of society's latent fears. So, in her essay, Elements of Aversion, Elizabeth Barrett says this. The old fight-or-flight reaction of our evolution heritage once played a major role in the life of every human. Our ancestors lived and died by it. Then someone invented the fascinating game of civilization, and things began to calm down. Development pushed the wilderness back from settled lands. War, crime, and other forms of social violence came with civilization, and humans started preying on each other. But by and large, daily life calmed down. We began to feel restless, to feel something missing. The excitement of living on the edge, the tension between hunter and hunted. So we told each other stories through the long, dark nights, when the fires burned low. We did our best to scare the daylights out of each other. The rush of adrenaline feels good. Our hearts pound, our breaths quicken and we can imagine ourselves on the edge. Yet we also appreciate the insightful aspects of horror. Sometimes the story intends to shock and disgust, but the best horror intends to rattle our cages, shake us out of complacency, and it makes us think, forces us to confront ideas we might rather ignore, and challenges preconceptions of all kinds. Horror reminds us the world is not always as safe as it seems, which exercises our our mental muscles and reminds us to keep a healthy caution close at hand. So while these stories became more about entertainment than warnings about practical dangers, at the root of every story is that idea of what if? What if things weren't as safe as they seemed? If your neighbor was not who you thought they were? If that old man in the castle on the hill wasn't just an old man? <laughs> and that those noises that you hear at night wasn't just your house settling? For a story to truly scare you, there must be something you can relate to, something that speaks to those most primal fears. And there has to be, even if it's in the smallest sliver, possibility. This thing could happen. Quote, 
In his book, The Philosophy of Horror, the American thinker Noel Carroll describes the horror as a story about an event or entity that contradicts our, our conventional con understanding of the world. Although people initially experience the con this contradiction as deeply unsettling, Carroll argues that horror can serve as an intellectual purpose insofar as it draws attention to our false preconceptions and general lack of knowledge. So yeah, there's like so many horror stories. What comes down is it's about the unknown. The thing we don't, the thing we don't understand, is generally what we fear. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So while we must look at folklore and myth to kind of try and rock out what the oldest stories are or may have looked like, unsurprisingly, it was during the Greco-Roman period that we would first began to see written examples of this. And with some of the most classic supernatural entities that we still know today, which is ghosts, vampires, werewolves, the undead, and demons, all these things that go bump in the night that you can walk into a spirit of Halloween and buy a costume of right now. <laughs> <laughs> One of the earliest recordings that we do have of a scary story seems to come from a letter correspondence written by none other than Pliny the Elder during the first century. Yes! Fucking Pliny. God damn it. So this is what he wrote. Um, obviously not in its original Greek. There was at Athens a large and roomy house, which had a bad name, so that no one would live there. In the dead of the night, a noise resembling the clashing of iron was frequently heard, which, if you listened more attentively, sounded like the rattling of chains, distant at first, but approaching nearer by degrees. Immediately afterwards, a specter appeared in the form of an old man, of extremely emaciated and squalid appearance, with a long beard and disheveled hair, rattling the chains on his feet and hands. The distressed occupants, meanwhile, passed their waking, wakeful nights under the most dreadful terrors imaginable. This, as it broke their rest, ruined their health and brought on distempers. Their, temp their terror grew upon them, and death ensued. Even in the daytime, though the spirit did not appear, yet the impression remained so strong upon their imaginations that it still seemed before their eyes, and kept them in perpetual alarm. Consequently, the house was at length deserted, as, be as being deemed absolutely uninhabitable, so that it was now entirely abandoned to the ghost. However, in hopes that some tenant might be, might, might be found who was ignorant enough of the very alarming circumstances, a bill was put up, giving notice that it was either to be let or sold. It happened that Athenodorus, the philosopher, came from Athens, from Athens at the time, and reading the bill, inquired about the price. The extraordinary cheapness raised his suspicion. Nevertheless, when he heard the whole story, he was so far from being discouraged that he was more strongly inclined to hire it. And in short, he actually did. When it grew towards evenings, he ordered a couch to be prepared for him in the front part of the house. After calling for a light, together with his pencil and tablets, directed all his people to retire. But that his mind might not, for want of an appointment, be open to the vain terrors of imaginary noises and spirits. He applied himself to writing with utmost attention. The first part of the night passed in entire silence. As usual, at length the clanking of iron and rattling of chains was heard. However, he neither lifted up his eyes nor laid down his pen, but in order to keep calm and collected, tried to pass the sounds off to himself as something else. The noise increased and advanced nearer, till it seemed at the door, and at last in the chamber. He looked up, saw, and recognized the ghost exactly how it had been described to him. It stood before him, beckoning with the finger, like a person who calls another. Athenodorus, in reply, made a sign with his hand that said he should wait a little, and threw his eyes once again to his papers. <laughs> the ghost then rattled its chain over the head of this philosopher, who looked upon, up upon this, and seeing it beckoning as before, immediately arose, and light in hand followed it. The ghost slowly stalked along as if encumbered by the chains, and turning into the area of the house, suddenly vanished. 
Xenodorus, being thus deserted, made a mark with some grass and leaves on the spot where the spirit left him. The next day, he gave information to the magistrates and advised them to order the spot be dug up. This was accordingly done, and the skeleton of a man in chains was found there. The body, having lain a considerable time in the ground, was putrefied and moldered away from the fetters. The bones, being collected together, were publicly buried, and thus after, the ghost was appeased by the, pro by the proper ceremonies, and the house was haunted no more. Which is, like, such a fucking classic story. <laughs> like, this story yeah, still be reading the world today. <laughs> absolutely. That's, yeah. that, that is, yeah, that's, like, the baseline haunted house. Yeah. Yeah. This huh. is why you don't build houses on graves. Nope. Or bury dead or... people's bones in the walls. Yeah. Or like Brick just... up people behind walls. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. We'll talk about we're watching Fall of the House of Usher right now. Oh. So mm -hmm. just a thought. How mm -hmm. haunted is the Great Wall of China? <laughs> I I think at uh, some point you you hit a you, you you hit a cap right like you can't go any higher. There are too many shows per square footage. Yeah, we're out of room. Sorry, there's no room at the inn, y'all. You're gonna have to go find some other place to haunt. Uh, <laughs> I that does make me wonder though if there are there's got to be ghost stories about the Great Wall of China. Oh, yeah. for sure. That really interesting. That would be really interesting. We'll have to do another haunted episode kind of thing mm -hmm. at some point and pick some places that maybe, like you'd said, aren't super commonly thought of. Yeah. Oh, the earliest werewolf stories are said to have come from Petronius, who lived during the, the early half of the first century, which I didn't know werewolves went back that far. Who knew? <laughs> huh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess it makes sense with, like, you know, we got all those kind of pagan myth legends about people who can shapeshift into animals and stuff. So I guess. Yeah, you know, shapeshifters. Yep. how you define werewolf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you just think about it as shape, if you broaden it as shapeshifters, for sure. Yeah. So while it's more than likely based on folklore myths that have survived, the stories around witches and those using magic have been with us forever. Our first written story comes from the fifth epode of Horus, thought to be written between 42 and 30 BC wherein a boy is captured and killed by a group of fearsome witches. These kinds of stories were pre prevalent in this period, but would decrease dramatically when we entered the Dark Ages, which isn't surprising, really, as there was the same dramatic decrease in all written works in general, with the fall of the Roman Empire, literacy rates plummeted, and seemed it was only the clergy that could read and write by and large, and they were too busy copying religious texts to note down whatever the hot, scary story was at the time. Right, right. So we're sure during this time stories were being told, just not recorded, but there were a few exceptions. Beowulf is thought to have been written between 700 and 1000 AD, though this is heavily debated. It, you know, the earliest publication is like, like 1025, but it's believed the story goes way back further than that. Okay. Regardless, the poem absolutely contains elements of horror, even the first chapter alone, with Beowulf squares off with Grendel, a monstrous being that barges in to a celebration, pained by the sounds of joy, and devours many of the men, forcing the clan that live there to flee, until Beowulf comes to slay the monster. Beowulf then fights Grendel's mother, who appears to be a monstrous entity living at the bottom of a lake. These are classic horror elements. Yep, <laughs> Lady totally. in the lake, and the monster from the hill that doesn't like when people are happy. 
Mm-hmm. In the 12th century, we have Bisclavet, a werewolf story written by Mary the Prom. Bisclavet is a baron in Brittany who is well-loved by the king. He vanishes every week for three days. No one in his household, not even his wife, knows where he goes. His wife finally begs him to tell her his secret, and he explains that he is a werewolf. He also says that while in werewolf form, he needs to hide his clothing in a safe place so he can return to human form. The Baron's wife is so shocked by this news that she tries to think of ways that she can escape her husband. She does not want to lie beside him anymore. She conspires with a knight who has loved her for a long time. The following week, the Baron's wife sends the knight to steal her husband's clothing. When her husband fails to return, she marries the knight. The Baron's people search for him, but finally relent, revealing that their absentee ruler has left them for good. A year later, the king goes hunting and his dogs corner Bisclavet, now fixed in wolf form. As soon as he sees him, Bisclavet runs the king to beg for mercy by taking the king's stirrup and kissing his foot and leg. His behavior so astounds the king that he has his companions drive the, back the dogs and everyone marvels at the wolf's nobility and, gen- and gentleness. The king takes Bisclavet, still in wolf form, back to the castle to live with him. The knight who had married Bisquevet's wife is invited to the castle for a celebration along with the other barons. As soon as he sees them, Bisquevet attacks the, do- the man. The king calls to Bisquevet and threatens him with his staff because he's never seen him act so violent before. Everybody in the court thinks the knight must have done something to wrong the wolf. Soon after, the king visits the area where the baron used to live and brings the werewolf along with them. Bisquevet's wife learns of the king's arrival and takes many gifts for him. When he sees his former wife, nobody can restrain Bisclavet. He attacks her, tearing off her nose. A wise man points out that the wolf had never acted so before, and that this woman was the wife of the knight whom Bisclavet had recently attacked. The wise man also tells the king that this woman is the former wife of the missing baron. The king has the wife questioned under torture, and she confesses, and she confesses all and yields up the stolen clothing. The king's men put the clothing before the wolf, but he ignores it, and the wise man advises that to take the wolf and the, and the clothes take the wolf and the clothing into a bedchamber and let Bisqueret have some privacy. Bisqueret mm-hmm. does so, and when he again sees him, the king runs to his beloved baron and embraces him, giving him many kisses. The king restores Bisqueret's land to him and exiles the baroness and her knight. Many of the wife's female progeny were afterwards born without noses, and all of her children were quite recognizable in face and appearance. Okay, then. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a fucking curse. Yeah. Yes. No nose. <laughs> yeah. This is how the Githyanki were made. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Around the same time, we also have a story called The Witch of Berkeley. It was a medieval English led legend describing a woman for Berkeley, Gloucestershire, who sold her soul to the devil for her wealth. After being alerted to her encroaching demise by an omen from her pet Jackdaw, she leaves instructions with her children on how to safeguard her spirit after death. In accordance with her wishes, her body is wrapped in elk hide and then placed inside a stone coffin, which is then fastened by three chains. For three nights, her family stood watch over her grave, but each night a demon came and broke one of the chains. On the third night, when all the chains had been broken, the devil appeared and set the witch on a black horse with iron hooks projecting over the whole of its back. She was then carried off into hell, leaving nothing but the sound of her pitiable cries. Ooh. Fucked up shit. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Whoa. Also, don't make deals with devils. <laughs> no. Just yep. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Um. Yeah, we have Dante's Divine Comedy, which is written during the 13th century, while not what we'd immediately think of as horror today, because it kind of falls in the genre of classics, as all the elements of a horror story. The author presents. Yeah, it sure does. Down. 
yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the shadow sees the three sections of the Christian afterlife, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, with Inferno naturally being the most horrific. It played on the fears of many Christians of the time, when the concept of going to hell was something people took a lot more serious back then. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am curious how the church responded to that. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, you know, it's their, their lore used for entertainment, essentially. Right. Hmm. I don't like it when other people make decisions about what's... Well, okay, so beautiful. when was when was that written? 13th century. 13th century. The church wouldn't have had as much power. Yeah. I mean, it definitely had influence and, and power, but yeah, that's curious. I don't know. Mark that down for something in the future. <laughs> That is interesting. So the 18th and 19th century may have been the golden age of horror stories. This would be the birth of gothic fiction and many of the horror classics we still love today. This literary genre popularized many staples of modern horror, including spooky settings, an emphasis on mystery and suspense, and a liberal use of dreams and nightmares. We would also see many of the stories in this era seemingly being based on real-life events or individuals instead of myth, creating more grounded settings in which the Victorian readers could more easily imagine themselves being part of. The first gothic story is thought to be The Castle of Otranto, a 1764 novel written by the English author Horace Walpole. It tells the story of a nobleman hell-bent on securing a decrepit chateau for his heirs despite the dangers that seemed to lurk there. This is the summary of the story. The Castle of Otranto tells the story of Manfred, lord of the castle, and his family. The book begins on the wedding day of his sickly son Conrad to the princess Isabella. Shortly before the wedding, however, Conrad is crushed to death by a gigantic helmet that falls on him from above. Helmet above. Okay. <laughs> that would just fall on somebody during a wedding. <laughs> sure. Red wedding. Yeah, I, was, I, I just was yeah. thinking that. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, this inexplicable event is particularly ominous in the light of an ancient prophecy that says that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. Manfred, mm. terrified that Conrad's death signals the beginning and the end of his line, resolves to avert destruction by marrying Isabella himself, while divorcing his current wife, Hippolyta, who he feels failed to bear her many proper heirs in light of the sickly condition of Conrad before his untimely death. Sure, she loved that. Yeah, it was just like, mm, it's always about, you know... How it's not, it's yeah. never, it's they didn't give birth, didn't give me an heir. It's like, well, okay, well, then tell your sperm that you need a boy because it's your <laughs> fault. Yeah, just as much gullible, if not more. Um, so, however, as Manfred attempts to marry Isabella, she escapes to a church with the aid of a peasant named Theodore. Manfred orders Theodore's death while ta- talking to the friar Jerome, who ensures that Isabella's safety in the church. When Theodore removes his shirt to be killed, Jerome recognizes a mark below his shoulder and identifies Theodore as his own son. Jerome begs for his son's life, but Manfred says Jerome must either give up the princess or his son's life. They are interrupted by a trumpet and the entrance of knights from another kingdom, who want to deliver Isabella to her father, Frederick, along with the castle, as Frederick has a stronger claim to it, which is another reason that Manfred wanted to marry Isabella. This leads the knights and Manfred on a race to find Isabella. Theodore, having been locked in a tower by Manfred, is freed by Manfred's daughter, Matilda. He races to the underground church and finds Isabella. He hides her in a cave and blocks it to protect her from Manfred, and ends up fighting one of the mysterious knights. Theodore badly injures that knight, who turns out to be Isabella's father, Frederick. With that, they all go to the castle to work things out. Frederick falls in love with Matilda. 
and he and Manfred make a deal to marry each other's daughters. Frederick backs oh. out and Frederick backs out being warned by an apparition of a skeleton. So like, like, okay, let's marry each other's daughters. Frederick's like, okay, I'll marry your daughter, Matilda. Matilda, you marry my daughter, Isabella. And then like Frederick decides, actually, you know, a skeleton told me not to marry your daughter. Oh my God. This is fine. Listen to the skeleton. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Manfred suspecting <laughs> that Isabella is meeting Theodore in a tryst in the church, takes a knife into the church where Matilda is meeting Theodore instead. Thinking his own daughter is Isabella, he stabs her. Theodore is then uh, revealed to be the true prince of Otranto as Matilda dies, leaving Manfred to repent. A giant ghostly form appears, declares the prophecy fulfilled, and shatters the castle's walls. Manfred abdicates the principality and retires to religion along with Hippolyta, which I don't know why the fuck she went back with him, but all right. Yeah, really. Theodore becomes prince of the, the remains of the castle and is married to Isabella, for she is the only one who can truly understand his sorrow. Oh. Like dear. some days of our lives right there. <laughs> That's, yeah. Hmm. So yeah, we would also see such classics as Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's 1897 Dracula, which was published mm -hmm. towards the end of that century. So like many Gothic writers, both Shelley and Stoker drew inspiration from the distant past. Shelley from the myth of Prometheus and Stoker from Vlad Dracula the Impaler. Um, quote, it is now commonly accepted that the horror elements of Dracula, Dracula's portrayal of vampirism are metaphors for sexuality in a repressed Victorian era. But this is merely one of the interpretations of the metaphor of Dracula. Jack Halbertson postulates many of these in this essay in Technologies of Monstrosity, Bram Stoker's Dracula. He writes, The image of dusty and unused gold coins from many nations and unworn jewels immediately connects Dracula to the old money of a corrupt class, to a kind of piracy of nations, and to the worst excesses of aristocracy. Which, I'd never heard that interpretation before, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. People are just pissed off about corrupt rich. <laughs> Like, yeah, fair. yeah. So, while the most famous eras, famous stories from this era are star men, a significant amount of the horror fiction of this era was written by women and marketed towards a female audience, with a typical scenario of the novels being a resourceful female menaced in a gloomy castle. Subjects began to shift in the 19th century, as the 19th century waned, waned though. Serial murderer became a recurring theme. Yellow journalism and sensualization of various murders such as Jack the Ripper, the lesser so, Carl Panzrim, Fritz Harman, and Albert Fish all perpetuated this phenomenon. The trend continued into the post-war era, partly renewed after the murders committed by Ed Gein. In, 19 in 1959, Robert Bloch, inspired by the murders, wrote Psycho. The crimes committed in 1969 by the Manson family influenced the slasher theme in horror fiction in the 1970s. In 1981, Thomas Harris wrote Red Dragon, introducing... Dr. Hannibal Leckard. Mm -hmm. Which, um, I, I got a little section here about the origin of Hannibal Lecter, which I thought was just kind of fun. The classic horror icon. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so it was revealed in the preface for the 25th edition of The Silence of the Lambs in 2013 that Harris was a 23-year-old journalist in the early 1960s when he visited Nuevo Leon State Prison in Monterrey, Mexico to report on an American convicted of murder named Dykes Askew Simmons. Simmons, with his unnerving eyes and bad Z-plasty repairing a cleft lip, certainly fit the profile of a killer. But Harris found himself more intrigued by the doctor who tended to the American following a botched prison escape. Harris met Dr. Salazar in the prison medical office, describing him as a small, lift man with dark red hair with a certain elegance about him. 
After a few nondescript answers, the doctor sprung to life as he probed the reporter for his thoughts on disfigured, Simmons' disfigured appearance. And the doctor asks, were the murdered people attractive? Yes, Harris says. Was the doctor insinuating the beautiful victims had pushed Simmons into a violent rage? Certainly not, the doctor said, but early torment makes torment easily imagined. Listen, Mr. Harris, he continued, how would you put that in your journal? How do you treat the fear of torment in journalese? Might you say something snappy about torment, like it puts the hell in hello? <laughs> Later that day, Harris was surprised to learn that Dr. Salazar was not a prison employee, as he assumed, but a convict facing a lengthy stay behind bars. The doctor is a murderer, the warden told him. As a surgeon, he could package his victims in the surprisingly small boxes. He will never leave this place. He is insane. According to profiles in the Times of the UK and Latin Times, the Salazar and Harris's story was known by the real name of Alfredo Bali Trevino. He was born in a prominent family in Mendes, Tamaulipas, and his strict father pushing the boy and his siblings to excel in their studies. As a medical intern in 1959, Bali Trevino got into an argument with his lover, Jesus Castillo Ringo, due to their either money problems or the former's insistence on marrying a woman. The would-be doctor mm. killed his boyfriend, carefully sliced him into pieces, fit him into a box, and attempted to bury the box in a ranch. His handiwork was soon uncovered, however, and Bali Trevino was sentenced to death in 1961 for his crime of passion. He was also said to be a suspect in the killing of a dismemberment of a hitchhikers, though this, these accusations have never been proven. While in prison, the werewolf of Nuevo Leon reportedly continued to display a deaf sartorial touch with his light-colored suits, dark shades, and gold Rolex watch. He also maintained an informal medical practice by tending to other prisoners and visiting townspeople. And apparently, like, he terrified the prison, the, like, the members of the prison society so much that, like, they let him keep his fucking gold Rolex and oh be all, God. like, pimped out. <laughs> wow. That's insane. Yeah. The sentence commuted after 20 years behind bars, Bali Trevino returned to his old neighborhood in Monterey to treat the sick and the poor, often for free. He agreed to sit for a newspaper interview in 2008, months before his death from prostate cancer, but refused to talk about his violent past, saying, I don't want to wake up my ghosts. And so yeah, what? this is the guy inspired him to Holy shit. I don't want to wake up my ghosts? Fucking like ominous as shit. <laughs> that is. Hold on, I gotta write that down. Holy shit! Oh my God. Yeah, so, like, there's no evidence that he was a cannibal. So, sure. like, you know, it's a separate thing entirely. But just that the attitude and that personality is, you know, mm -hmm. you can see Lecter in that very easily. Oh yeah. I don't want to wake up my ghost. Oh my god. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting to me, like, Lecter is such a good example of that, that monster in a man, like, mm -hmm. baseline story. Ugh. Yeah. It's, it's so good. It's, I'm gonna have yeah, to do I'm... my yearly Hannibal rewatch, I think. <laughs> it's the right season for it. I know, right? All right. So we'll finish this with a quote from the science fiction historian Daryl Schweitzer, who said, In the simplest sense, a horror story is one that scares us. The true horror story requires a sense of evil, not necessarily in a theological sense, but the menaces must be truly menacing, life-destroying, and antithetical 
to happiness. Mm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Be something that fucks up your happiness. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's why I kind of got a mini history on horror. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was really interesting. Oh, I what like were you saying, it. Nathan? So that was really neat. Oh, I'm good. I'm glad. <laughs> All right, Hallie, bring us home. Okay. Woo! All right. I'm a mountain biking vampire witch from the future, and the only good season is spooky season. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um. So I, yeah, I, I thought it would be just kind of fun, like Kayla had mentioned, to figure out why in the hells. We even like to be scared in the first place. Um, Kayla touched on a couple of the things, but I thought it would be kind of fun to look at. You know, there's a, there's a lot of scary movies. It's a whole thing. There are cons. There are people are giant fans of horror movies, um, scary books and, and shows and podcasts. And it's all very popular. Horror is the fifth most popular genre just in general. I think if you put um, in like true crime in there too, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I was actually just looking at the slate of true crime books that have come out over the last few years and oh. how freaking terrifying the stories are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's always been interesting to me why we willingly sit down and consume something that will scare the living daylights out of us. Kind of seems counterintuitive. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you two. I have gone through uh, several different uh, cycles, we'll say, of enjoying horror and then hating it and then enjoying it again. And I don't know if it's because of age or life experience or just I'm now a wimp. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I don't know how I've you two feel about horror. A horror fan, but I'm very specific about my horror. Like I prefer more psychological mm-hmm. horror than like mm-hmm. also like you know the gore porn. I'm not interested in that. Yeah, give me something to think about is what I want. I'm very specific about it when I do it. <laughs> I like the psychological stuff. From time to time, I can deal with like the gore, Leatherface. Usually, yeah. it's like eh, I'd rather mm-hmm. not. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll always I, love Scream just because that's a classic, but other than that's that, classic. The garage door scene, you never look at a garage door, cat or <laughs> dog door in a garage the same way. Um, yeah. yeah. Yep. That's, I fi- yeah. And I feel that way about um, movies like The Exorcist, um, The Shining. I've actually seen it. I've the seen Exorcist, Shining. get the extended full director's cut for sure. Um, some of the crap that they cut out of like the original movie theater release, I was like, "Oh, I see why you cut that out." Because, okie dokie. Um, but yeah, that one's a good one. I I always recommend that one. But yeah, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, okay, I used to any if it was horror at all, I would watch it, consume it. I willingly walked into haunted attractions, paid through the nose for them. We went to one sidebar. I don't know if I've ever told this story to you all. I could have. And if I have, stop me. We went to one. Oh, I might have been 20. That was a long time ago. Um, on the, like the way outskirts of where we were living. And 
it was in another county. There's no lights back there. Like we didn't know where we were going. This was when you printed directions off a of MapQuest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. I had friends with me. I was driving. We didn't know where we were going. I had heard about this because it was actually put on by a theater troupe. And oh, cool. half of them. Yeah. So th- th- there was a, a theatrical process to it that made it very memorable. So we drove out there and they have like, you know, the campfire set up and they're selling hot cider and hot chocolate and little snacks and doing the whole thing. And you reserve a time and you can't have a group bigger than six people because you're outside on this property that I later looked up and discovered that it had its own ghost story to it. Um, The property was this, it was huge, just acres and acres of wooded, mostly wooded lots, big rolling hills. Um, And the, the whole idea was that they were kind of playing on the ghost story about a man who had worked the grounds for the guy. There's like a, there's like a big house there, you know, it was some rich guy who had owned it back in the, I want to say the early 1800s. And apparently this guy's daughter had gotten lost in the woods and disappeared. And yeah. so they he sent his caretakers out to go find her. And the one guy couldn't find her, but he found her doll. Oh. I was like, oh, God, oh. dolls. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> dolls? I'm fucking so, out. <laughs> yeah. So we went, we went two years in a row. Unfortunately, because of all of the animatronics and the fog machines and the lights and all of the stuff that they had rigged up. We had a couple of autumns with very heavy rain and it would shut down the production, unfortunately. And they never did it after that. It was called the, the experience. That was just the name. Like you had no idea what you were walking into. You had no idea what was going to happen. They promised, obviously, you know, they can't touch people. Um, yeah, yeah. so, so they take your group and they have this, like, looks like they built it, you know, almost like a theater troupe would build a set. They have this Uh kind of like entryway that they built in between, um, these two trees where the path, uh, would lead you through because the whole thing was you can't stray off the path. And they did have people there to make sure that you didn't like accidentally wander off. Um, so you walk through, the guide tells you the ghost story, right? And then they turn you loose in the woods. <laughs> and I was with two friends of mine, a coworker and her like older teenage son. He was like 15. Uh, he was all in, too. I just remember him in the back. He was like, yes, this is so fucking cool. This is so fucking cool. <laughs> and we're just walking there's no sound there's some lights just enough to make sure you don't wander off and every now and then off the corner of my eye i see like a robed a black hooded robed figure security basically to make sure you didn't wander off yeah so we walk for you know memory is a funny thing right so in my mind now almost two decades later it's like we walked for a solid couple of minutes before anything happened. And just when I was like, are we getting punked? Did we just pay through the nose for a bunch of bullshit? <laughs> that these lights start going off at our feet. And then there's a rocking chair moving on its own with a doll in it. Oh, my God. It's like, oh, fuck. Here we go. 
And eventually, as you walk through, you get the story of what happened to this little girl. Um, this was when the ring was really popular. So mm-hmm. uh, she kind of looked like that. What broke my immersion when she popped up on the trail in front of us, because they were really good at redirection. We would be looking one way and then you turn around and oh, she's right there, was that it was clearly a dude in the costume because he had like big hairy forearms. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will never forget that. <laughs> I remember trying not to laugh. And like... So they tell you this whole story and they have all of this stuff rigged up and it's really cool. And you get to the end and you realize you are encircled by figures in black robes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. What is about to happen here? And I happened to turn to my left a little bit and look. and. Someone at the newspaper, the big city newspaper, caught, I don't know if it was that night or just happened to be um, in and around taking pictures of of this event. Um, There was a full harvest moon, so that yellowy orange moon, and one of the figures was standing up on the hill to our left. (laughs) And that was the front page of the paper, and I was like, that's perfect. It's That's awesome. so creepy. They looked like ring wraiths, right? They yeah, had yeah. they had the whole black hood and they had these like weird metallic looking gloves on and everything. Okay. So we're encircled by all of these actors. And then it was like monkeys in a barrel. We got this thing dropped over our heads. Where we oh. were trapped inside this tight little space with all of these actors and there were strobe lights going off and they were moving oh my god it was the scariest thing (laughs) (laughs) that sounds amazing and then at the end they gave you a full-size candy bar and i was like oh okay i'm good (laughs) (laughs) excellent (laughs) but i'd never been in anything like that before because they actually told you a story and they this their version of the story was that she wandered off and got lost and something or someone perhaps haunted on the land another person who disappeared there got a hold of her and then she was forever stuck haunting that land um but yeah th- it was that kind of thing that i've always enjoyed with horror I have been yeah. to other ones where they like shove you in a room full of clowns. They shove you in a room with somebody's got, ooh, <laughs> someone's got a chainsaw, you know, like, yeah, it's not interesting. It's not creative. And it's not like you had said, Kayla, it's not making you think you're just screaming and running. Yeah. Um, There's nothing to do you, it. Do you know what the PNE is? I don't know if Pacific Northwest like exhibition or something. That's what it's called. It's basically mm-hmm. a fair in vancouver that's pretty much around all year um it's not always open all year but like they do different things across the year but um so you know it's got your rides and your usual stuff and um pretty much throughout the month of october they do something called fright nights it's where they set up like (laughs) a half dozen haunted houses okay they're all themed they all have stories to them um be it's a friend of my brother they went a couple years back and did them all um interesting uh, yeah it's like you know you've got your like haunted mansion the, like carnival one you know the you know medical like a hospital one 
The one that I remember the most was the uh, doll factory. <laughs> uh-uh. Yeah, you come so... Into, you come into a room, and it's a big, massive room, and there's mannequins everywhere. <laughs> and there's throw blood going off. And among the mannequins is people. Oh, no! I was there with my best friend, and she started freaking out. She, like, she just stopped moving. And I'm like, we need to keep going. We can't just stand here. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun. Yeah, if you ever come down here in October, we could totally do that. Oh, my God. Oh, I don't like the thing with the dolls. <laughs> I also hate the dolls. Ooh. But that's why I'm excited about the doll factory this, <laughs> <laughs> this week. Yeah, so Nathan's never been before, but we're going this week. So Hell yeah. Let it, let us know how it how it went. I am <laughs> yeah, no. See that's the kind of thing I can't do that kind of thing anymore. It it jump scares spike my anxiety so bad. And it takes me like two hours to calm down. It's not good. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, there's something about the older I've gotten it. The jump scares really don't. And I think it's a control thing. So like, for example, I really love horror books. I love them. I like ones that horror is such a, in, in, in literature and in novels has changed so much over the last decade or so, especially over the last five years, because now it's not just like, okay, go read Stephen King. I freaking hate Stephen King. I can't stand <laughs> how he writes. It like, yes, he has he has established some classic stuff. Hundred percent, totally get it. He also can't write women. He shouldn't try. And <laughs> It's I don't know. There's something boring to what he's doing in my mind anymore. But like I just read um, Bloom by Delilah S. Dawson and it freaked my shit out because it's it's really easy to pin that book down. It's very short to to pin it as like a female Hannibal Lecter. But there's something it really insidious about that one because it's women. And it. Yeah, this is oh. what you were telling us about before. Right? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Oh God. Um, yeah, there there have been a couple. I've stumbled across a couple published this year that really have um changed my mind about a couple of the horror tropes. And I think that's what's really fun about horror books. You have really social media famous authors like Stephen Graham Jones and Catriona Ward and V. Castro and Eric LaRocca, people who are writing like diverse stories. Stephen Graham Jones in particular is writing, you know, horror based on the Native American tribe that he's a part of. That's cool. So it's really cool. It's really interesting. V. Castro and Sylvia Morena Garcia are doing the same thing with their Latin heritage. And, and telling different stories through that lens. That is really interesting to me. And it's, especially with horror books, like you can experience all of that weird and terrifying stuff, but I can control how much I see in my head, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was thinking about this, um, and we were, were talking about like the jump scares versus the psychological stuff, 
a lot of the more passive media with exceptions, like you had said, Kayla, is just kind of like, ugh. Again? We're doing this again? How many leather faces are there? How many Halloweens are there? Like, we're really doing this again. Okay. But, like I mentioned at the top, um, you know, we just started watching The Fall of the House of Usher. And I guess (laughs) Jeremy was like, how did you call that? Because there was a moment, and I think we're past... Just finished episode three. And he goes, how did you know that? And I was like, I have read too many horror books. That's why. <laughs> that's, that's why I knew what was going to happen as soon as I saw. But it's really good so far. I mean, it's a Mike Flanagan production. So, like, I expect a certain level of things moving around in the background. There's definitely some I of that. I haven't heard of this show yet. All of yeah, it's the same... It's Netflix. Um, it's based yeah. off of a lot of Poe stories. And it's Mike Flanagan who did Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Mass. Okay. This is this yep. year's version? Oh, yeah. This okay. is this year's version of it. Yeah. His cast. Obviously, you're going to recognize a lot of them. I always forget Rahul Kohli is British. I always forget I that for some so reason. I love him so much. He is fanta- He's fantastic in it. They all are. But I just... I he's playing with a lot of the tropes that Poe had had expounded on during his very short, odd lifetime. Um, And it. That's fun. Because I was like, oh, there's a depth to the story. And for the few moments I haven't jumped yet, I'm shocked. I was (laughs) because Haunting of Hill House, there's like two or three moments Every time she pops up and I always jump out of my skin, even though I know it's there Um, in the car in the last episode when the girls are driving to the house and she screams and they have to like peel off the road every time (laughs) scares the shit out of me. But it's for me, the 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 horror aspect of like spooky season, it's always fun. And I think because some of us are just more primed to enjoy that kind of thing. That's why we want to be scared. So I looked at it and I was like, okay, I know it's the amygdala, but what's actually happening in there? So I found a uh, Harvard Medical School article. So I was like, okay, legit. I'll take this. Um, So everything starts in the amygdala. Uh, Quote, you could call the amygdala a relevance detector, says Nusheen Hadjik. Connie, I was going to butcher that. I'm so sorry. Uh, A Harvard Medical School associate professor of radiology who specializes in capturing the activity of the brain as it reacts to fear, provoking stimuli. In less than 100 milliseconds, just one-tenth of a second, sensory information reaches the amygdala, which signals your brain to be aware. All of your systems become more receptive, and now you're ready to fight, freeze, or flee. So the amygdala is what's controlling all of this, and it buys us those few precious extra milliseconds in which to make that decision. And this reaction is built into mammals in general. Even after eons of evolution of adaptation, it's still like, it's like that where we always joke about the lizard brain. It's our lizard brain. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's our lizard brain going, no bad run, go. Or put up your fists or throw a thing or pick up a stick or, you know. Um, so scientists are still working on unraveling, quote, how we decipher danger in the gazes or body movements of others by informing treatments for conditions 
such as post-traumatic stress disorder, and even by providing clues to the gender-based underpinnings of human response to fear. Women and, and AFAB people are more primed in general um, to pick up on signals. There's a really great book called The Gift of Fear, which I highly recommend, um, about how we make those very decisions. And if we sit down and try to explain it, we can't a lot yeah. of the time. We just know. Um, so gut instinct is part of our fear response and why sometimes we like horror. Sometimes we enjoy that like emotional high, the roller coaster of it, right? And the come down. Mm -hmm. And for others of us, the come down means we have a panic. <laughs> it just depends. Um, and we could talk about, you know, fear and trauma responses, but we're focused on the more fun, scary part of Halloween. So we'll do that maybe in the future sometime. Uh, suffice to say that the amygdala is our knee-jerk reaction to fear and fear triggers. And with scary movies and TV and books and all of that, we have control of our surroundings to a degree. And lessening that fear response can be as simple as turning the TV off or shutting the book. So liking scary things is a lot more complex than just that roller coaster. Um, for some of us, it's the fact that it's not real. It's actually one of the biggest reasons cited by scientists and studies that they've done surveying people um, because we have control. We can walk away, turn it off, hide behind a pillow, whatever it might be. So a scary piece of media, however we consume it, is a small risk compared to, yeah. obviously, the real life situations, right? Um, we yeah, we know if we walk into a haunted attraction, one, we know we're paying for it. Hopefully we're willingly going and not being, you know, pushed. <laughs> um, but we know we're walking into the clown thing. We know we're walking into the doll factory. In the back of our minds, we know it's not real. And afterwards, we can laugh about it. In the moment, our amygdala totally overrides everything. Mm. And is like, run, get the fuck out, go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> no likey. <laughs> <laughs> Some people enjoy that that roller coaster, and that's all that it is. Um, but I also like looking at how scary, you know, horror media taps into some well-known archetypes, like Kayla had touched on. And I think, especially as someone who is a is a big reader, with horror, when we read it, the genre is a really good chance for us to examine our own opinions and biases and responses to fictional characters and situations. Again, the risk is so very small. Um, and horror as a genre, which is becoming super popular right now, and that started when the pandemic started, um, horror always becomes more popular during times of political and social unrest. Mm. Always. Some people, in order to cope dive into the things that scare them the most yeah for others of us we look at that and we go why in the world contagion was the most downloaded and streamed movie in the first several months of the pandemic oh my god yeah i remember the metrics for it mm -hmm. yep horror is huge i have a little chart here for you um, from a study a little infographic -y thingy where in the world did I put the thing? Here we go. This is from uh, Penn State University. <laughs> you mean uh, Jack went? <laughs> what? That's state college. That's where Jack went to school and him and Jen left. 
Oh, God. <laughs> I don't ever go to hear Penn State University not think about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> totally no, you're good. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, it's fine. It just took me a minute to process that. I was like, wait, what, huh? Um, so this chart, this little infographic, it says, since Frankenstein came out in 1931, horror movies have made more than $23 trillion in U.S. ticket sales, and that figure has been adjusted for inflation. The top performing horror movie in the U.S. is It, the 2017 film based on Stephen King's book about an evil clown. It earned $404.3 million at the box office. And globally, the top performing horror movie is The Exorcist, which has made $441.3 million. Jesus. Um, oh, yeah. Horror is big. Yep. Um, as Ray Bradbury, who most people know for writing Fahrenheit 451, I would recommend his horror books for children. They are scary. Um, <laughs> he is an interesting dude. Uh, as he put it, quote, while our art cannot, as we wish it could, save us from wars, privation, envy, greed, old age, or death, it can revitalize us amid it all. So horror lets us wrestle with the wider picture of the world, but also our own personal demons. Racism, sexism, populism, capitalism, and any and all of the so-called seven deadly sins. It can help us probe our fear of death, of loneliness, of strange yet edifying sensation that we're truly on our own in a big bad world. Some take comfort in the bleakness of it, and others might find verisimilitude in understanding a part of themselves they hadn't fully explored. And horror provides that, while our fears might wax and wane, the genre is most certainly here to stay. Uh, fear is an ancient emotion. It's as old as when we first had a word to put to it, and even before that, thank you, Pliny the Elder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's usually his fault anyways. Uh, and while there's a very fine line between the fun of being scared and the danger of fear inducing panic attacks and even worse, it's hard to imagine a world where scary stories don't exist. They reveal our best and our worst, and they plumb the most hidden depths inside all of us. It's a spooky... And there's science, and for lots of reasons for it. <laughs> so many. Um, there's also, I have in my notes, a really good article called The Psychology Behind Why We Love or Hate Horror. Uh, it was a, a fun one that I recommend. It's from the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, actually. Uh, why we consume it, again, looking at adrenaline and the amygdala why it's pleasurable for some people, the notes of detachment, how protected it is, and that we can control the images and the dangers that we encounter. Um, and also that research suggests that the absence of any of these psychological protective frames in the moment reduces the preference for horror consumption, which may explain why some people stay away from what scares them. I happen to know um, someone who is the total opposite of me, even the notion of anything gritty or grimy or even slightly scary makes them absolutely want to run the other way. Um, <laughs> so it's really interesting when I talk to people like that, because it's like fear in and of itself is a deeply logical and illogical response. And we can't untangle that because it is such a such a quick reaction most of the time. You just know. And so you have to go away. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, scientists are still digging at it. The Harvard article cites a couple of studies. Um, there's a PBS 
a news hour article that I had looked at that was really interesting. Um, and then there's one specifically called It Came From Stephen King, How Horror Lit Crawled Out of the Swamp and Into a Golden Age. Um, it, I, you know, I'm in the book industry and horror is it's fucking hot right now. Like you cannot get enough. It's either romanticy or it's horror that you see all over like book talk and, and all of this. People are absolutely scaring the living shit out of themselves with horror books right now. <laughs> well, cause for so long, like, um, yeah, yeah. The world is in a super upheaval right now. Hello. And people are, are trying to understand it through a different lens. I really like, um, Grady Hendrix, who's a horror author, uh, who wrote a book, a nonfiction book called paperbacks from hell which I also recommend looking at how, because you remember those really cheesy covers from the 80s? Yeah. Mm. Oh, my God. Paperbacks from Hell is such a good, in-depth look at how horror has changed over the last three or so decades. Uh, how it was very guy, pulpy, very... I'm sorry? Christopher Pike? What's that guy's name? Christopher Pike, I yeah. I the guy that made a billion of them, yeah. <laughs> Christopher fucking Pike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Stephen King, even back then, how exploitative it was at the time. How when you go back and you watch movies now like Night of the Living Dead and how exploitative it is with women, um, how sexist a lot of it is, how racist it is. Mm -hmm. And you look at it now and I look at authors like Eric LaRocca, who is fabulous. I think he... I am so I should have looked this up. Eric Lorca, I do believe, has indigenous um, Native American heritage, I want to say. He's Bram Stoker, you know, award-nominated, like, incredible short story writer who, like, tears things apart at a gut level and makes you uncomfortable because he pokes at that stuff. And drags it kicking and screaming into the light, you know, all of the all of the nasty isms for, that were so popular in those pulpy 80s books. And now we look at that and we go, oh, my God, why? <laughs> <laughs> what were we doing? But it, it, you know, so many people grew up on those. And now and of course, it's always white dudes are like, oh, I don't read horror now. It's not horror. It's not scary. And I'm like, no, you're just a, a all too piece woke. of shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's too woke. Like, but if anyone's interested, the Grady Hendrix paperbacks from hell is really interesting retrospective on how the genre has changed and why it's changed and how much better it is now. Um, I mean, if you have to use exploitative, exploitative stuff to make your story interesting, it's not mm -hmm. a good horror book. Then yeah. you're not a good writer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, the amygdala, quick. Tenth of a second decisions that our brains make. And our body says, okay, and get the fuck out. <laughs> you run the other way. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, bye. I always think about like uh one thing you often hear about women who like uh, um crime and stuff is like it's in a way like they're mentally preparing themselves if it ever happened to them. Mm -hmm. It's like a, mm -hmm. like a desensitization in a way. <laughs> like, okay, if I yeah. <laughs> I've definitely wrestled with my interest in true crime. It, it's all about the presentation. Um, yeah. 
and and not exploiting the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely some popular podcasts you definitely exploit. Um, there are others who do it really well. You know, it's a huge genre. And it's unfortunate that we give these shitty white men all the spotlight and we forget who they took. Yeah. It's really upsetting. So I'm I'm glad to see that that subsection of nonfiction is starting to change. Yeah. Yeah. People are being more aware of, oh, it's just like with the, with the Jen story, with the work that you've done on that, Kayla, and, and making sure that, you know, it's the, the victims who get their moment, if they want to tell their story, yeah. that they're supported and protected and that they feel safe, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's a humbling thing to be able to provide that space for people. Mm-hmm. And I'm so sick of of these stories that oh Ed Gein oh you know Bundy oh God, and it's like yeah yeah fucking Ed Gein <laughs> yeah there are always sick people in the world but you we like to I hate using this word but it is kind of true there's a romanticization that happens yeah with these people and it's like okay yeah but you know. Bundy killed so many people and their stories are the ones that get lost. Yeah. And it's really upsetting. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's a very divisive, I think, I think, I think true crime for a point there, people were consuming it and forgetting that there were real people. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely been a reckoning in the last while. For people yeah. that yeah are very exploited, but then it's been a lot of like big name podcasts and mm-hmm. stuff that are getting called out right now, which is good. Yeah. yeah, there's no reason to exploit people's stories for your own gain. That's just gross. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, well, I guess we can wrap up there. Alright, happy Halloween! Happy, happy Halloween! Spooky, spooky. Yes. Oh my gosh. Three? Yeah. Fuck. Yes. What? Yeah. Where yeah, no, right? did it go? I don't know, man. What happened? <laughs> no. Oh my god. I was just talking to my, my D and D group and we were like, Yeah, it's been seven years. Jesus. Oh my god. That makes me wanna like just walk away for a minute and <laughs> go, really? <laughs> this time really meant anything the last three years anyways. No. No. <laughs> I no. No, it doesn't matter. I don't know what what's time. What's clock? I don't know what a clock is. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. Halloween marks our third anniversary, so next time we'll take we'll take a look at the last year and the topics of the past. Also, as a bonus for you nerds out there, there will be about 20 minutes of us discussing Baldur's Gate. This originally happened at the beginning of us recording, but since it's not really relevant, we've removed it. But I did add it after the credit song, so if you really want to hear us talk about that nonsense, stick around. Just be aware that it's rife with spoilers, so if you haven't finished the game, you might want to do that first. 
As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Baldur's Gate. <gasps> did you? I did. Okay, so do we? Do you can tell me all about it? I already know how things work out, but maybe we should like spoiler, spoiler on this thing for people. Oh, I think well, I think we'll cut this it. part out because it's not relevant at all. <laughs> gotcha. No, it's cool. No, leave our rambles on there. All right. So what happened? Uh, you you finished it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we ended up siding with Orpheus. Oh, and, yeah. And Nathan became in it, came in Mind Flare. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, it was like, I love the conversation where uh, he's like, he's like, he's like, yeah, the the like emperor had one thing correct is someone is going to have to become a mind flayer mm-hmm. to do this so yeah um <laughs> uh yeah you guys want to do it and so my character <laughs> i i was in uh i was in control of the conversation i was like yeah no one's becoming a mind flayer it's not happening and he's like well i guess i'm going to become a mind flayer and i was like mm-hmm. okay that no that can't happen uh, so I was like, fine, I'll do it. And Orpheus was like, oh, you were testing me to see if I was the, if I was going to sacrifice for my people. That's very shrewd of you. Uh, you, will, you will be a hero among our people. Oh my god. How did you free Orpheus? With the hammer. With the hammer, yeah. You went and got it out of the House of Hope, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, no fucking deal. Did, with anybody, the did anybody fuck Harleep? Did anybody let that happen? I did. Oh. <laughs> I was like, okay, like if we just have to sleep with this guy to get the thing, let's do it. And like, this is getting weird now. <laughs> it was getting like, really weird. What? <laughs> yeah. Did you did you ask them about if Raphael's a good lover? Because that cracks my shit up. No, but I saw somebody talking about it. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I just unhinged. Unhinged. No, I was just going to say, I hope that they do what they did in Divinity 2, which is they fix the ending. Um, Because there's so little. Apparently, they wrote like an hour-long epilogue. And, right, and they cut it because they thought the game was too long. And I'm like, you psychos. Yeah. We were not here the entire time to get a shitty ending. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think the ending's that shitty. It's just it's just lackluster. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's just it yeah it's there's just no follow through on like anyone yeah it's like if you're gonna put that on like we put 134 hours into the game like you could put yeah. that much of time in it you want the fucking payoff <laughs> you want the payoff absolutely i want scenes of like consequences and what happens to the city and you know all that stuff what happens to the rest of your companions which there might be some stuff for the rest of the companions because for us like we pretty much got lazelle making a choice we got carlac mm-hmm. and will deciding to go with carlac okay and, like that was all we really got and i don't know if yeah. that's just because we were a multiplayer and it was all no no that's, and, that's we got, just, and we got and we got asterion almost lighting on fire and running away and running away yeah. it's it's so lackluster yeah there's just yeah. no follow-through on it no you got basically like the general ending that's it huh. i was like um yeah no <laughs> no no yeah they definitely need to go through and add more stuff to it oh shizzle there's yeah the house of hope the best thing about the house of hope was. oh my god we went through and we were doing the entire thing. Um, and then we're about to face off Raphael and we're in rough fucking shape. We're like, Shh. and like we had like had to like reload a couple times. I'm like, this is this is rough. And then Nathan's like, hey, apparently there's a restoration thing here. Uh huh. We didn't know that the fountain, that's what the fucking like fountain pool was. And we're like, yeah, oh, we need to get <laughs> back there, which was fun. <laughs> Because we just left the fucking, like, fire spheres running around, and there's just hellfire everywhere. Yeah, it was a time. Chaos. God, that that fight and that song, that battle song is... So good. So good. I was like, this is Disney villain epic level shit. So appropriate. It's oh, delicious. Good on that voice actor. What a what a fantastic job. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, I remember when Raphael popped up because he he was there from the beginning in early access. And mm-hmm. um originally he shows up at your camp. Like just bam, just walks up and then does the whole uh Caribbean line, you know, his little rhyme thingy that he's got. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? What is happening right now? And I'm glad that they've kept him because he's such a good, like, lawfully evil villain. Ugh. Um, apparently, uh, if you attack, apparently if you attack Raphael in the... Uh, in the hotel enough times mm-hmm. he gets annoyed with you and he's like fuck this the deal's off I'm leaving <gasps> and he just goes back home <laughs> <laughs> but so then I wonder if can you still get into the house of hope then probably I mean, probably but right? then you have to deal with him actually being there being there yeah, 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 yeah. interesting yeah. Um, um then you should tell her about your interaction with Blacketh yesterday. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I was not having any of her shit. Mm-hmm. And it was darker as run. So Yeah. You did the bad, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I was like 
I was like, okay, but you're a god. You go into the fucking oh. prism and deal with this shit. <laughs> and she's like, I will be obeyed. And uh-huh. I was like, okay, but I'm still struggling with the part where you're a god and you can't do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you wish to see godhood? I wish you <laughs> were dead. <laughs> and then everyone just drops dead. And I was like, that's so fucking uh, cool. It's what? so good. It's so... What other game does that shit? <laughs> yeah. Just. And gives you control of Gale's orb. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. We didn't have Gale with most of us, most of the part with us. And then, like, I saw um, someone post about, like, how, oh, you know, you could end the game really quickly. And we're like, uh-huh. what? Yep. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah. Ah, it's so good. You see the thing I sent you about me stealing Catherine's hammer? Wait. Uh, <laughs> no, wait. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, extort the risen. Right, right. <laughs> they just had no weapon for the rest of the fight <laughs> it's so good command heat metal <laughs> like yeah. um, fear Ugh. so I got in my dirge playthrough I got Lazelle um the sword that Voss's silver sword. sword. His legendary one. Okay. Yeah. I got it in Act One. Oh my God. So (laughs) I took a I took a (laughs) a fighter hireling and sent him invisible up to up to Voss. Didn't start the didn't start the uh, conversation or anything. Just disarm attack. Oh my God. And he drops it. Fails the save, drops it. It goes what? through the cutscene where he's like pointing the sword at me, and then he's like, "Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave and let my the rest of my people take care of you." And oh, so he disappears God. with his dragon, but his sword is still on the ground. <clears throat> <laughs> um, my hireling did not make it through. Whoops! I like couldn't couldn't pick it up even. Um, before I got downed. But they died. And then I ran in with my wizard invisible, picked up the sword, and then left. Oh my god. So all of the um all of those those like converse that one conversation that you have with Lazelle in Act Three, where she's excited about having um her silver sword, all just happens mm-hmm. immediately. that's good what what the shit and she doesn't even (sighs) she doesn't give a shit like she's like that's i just have my i got my sword now i'm amazing i'm the gift (laughs) (laughs) oh that game is wild uh i became a mind flare yeah uh, and actually sided with the emperor. Oh, so then he so just kind of floats people? off, huh? What about the people? 
Um, people just be enslaved forever? I think that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't sure remember. I've got my dirge. I Hold on. I've got my dirge ending and my monk ending. Because my monk ending was Orpheus. But I let mm. him become a mind flayer so that Lazel takes his place. Oh, that's uh, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of a actually kind of works out better because she's like very humbled by that. Like I really liked that reaction that she has. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of gro- my Lazel and my monk playthroughs. She's a, there's a lot of growth that happens <laughs> with her, um, especially after she almost died in that stupid machine thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the crash. Yeah, that was a hard, that was hard to get her out of there. <laughs> I was down to my last inspiration. And I was like rolling. I'm like, oh God, this better work. And it rolled a critical. And I was like, oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> I let her die in there. I know she can't actually die in there, but I was just like, oh, I'm sweating bullets. Um, oh, the one, the one for us was trying to convince Asterion to like not be- ascend. <sighs> Oh, oh yeah! Oh, that whole scene is like, whew. yeah, and then like you know, rough. the first time we did it, we failed, we failed the check, and then he's just kind of like, "Well, fuck you all! I'm breaking the staff and leaving." We're like, uh-huh. coming back, right? He's coming yeah. back, right? <laughs> no, nope, he's gone. Yeah, <laughs> okay, ascended Asterion is is interesting. I I think they yeah. fucked up there because he just doesn't like if you're if you're a master vampire, you better be able to do some wicked shit and you really can't. That's mm. unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Nathan, you should tell Howie how you, what you dealt with, did to Casador. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did you push him off? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I've been. I realized that if I just pop spirit guardians and walk up to his his mm-hmm. mist form, he just comes out of it, and then you can push him around. So I was like, oh. Oh. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So just push him off the cliff. And yep. then we swept the rest the of the battle. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're like, well, I guess we're not getting loot. And then it's like, Asterion's like, okay, he's in the coffin. And we're like, oh, okay. Right. I guess he goes yeah. in the coffin at the end of the fight normally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He pulls a Dracula, uh, uh, you know, a Strahd and bamps into the coffin. And then you just kind of, mine always glitched really weirdly. Cause I would try to um, like then either break the coffin or get him out of there and he wouldn't come out. So then eventually the fight was over and we're just waiting around by the coffin to see if he'll come out. And eventually mm-hmm. he does. And then a Starion stabs him. So. Mm. Yeah, but that scene where he sta- like absolutely beats the shit out of him is really good. Yeah. That one and um, Aelin's with Kethrick, where she just absolutely turns him into pudding. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, I love Aelin and Isabel. They're so good. That's, that's, <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep. Isabel died in yours, or was taken away. Uh, <laughs> I reloaded the entire second arc. <laughs> I was not fucking oh. around with that. That was well, the one decision. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I can't live with this. No, because it fucks everything up. So Yeah. My second time through, so my Dark Urge run, I went through, and then I was like, thinking about your situation when I was doing that fight, and 
like almost like immediately there like the first two times i did it like he got taken away and i was like wow like we had a really good easy run the first time we did it like we mm-hmm. there, there wasn't even a risk in our situation but when yeah. i was doing it mine yeah it was like oh shit this is actually a real yeah. risk thing <laughs> oh yeah yeah and and it's the the ai on her isn't good and if you like get borked in the initiative <laughs> okay we want to talk about bad ai let's talk about the gandians oh oh i hate that quest so much <laughs> Oh my god, we we redid that fight a lot. And somehow uh-huh. saved them all one of them. I'm like, okay, cool, yes. Kelly died. And Nathan's like, I don't think any did. And I'm like, oh. Hell yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. a that was a challenge. <laughs> that was a challenge. Cause then you're you're like, I, I stumbled on the onto the submersible by accident. And yes, we yeah. did too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Where where is Raven Guard? Okay. That was probably the most stressful part in the game for me. <laughs> we were trying really to figure out how to save everybody in six turns. Really stressful. Yep. Yep. And I, my, I don't know if it's a glitch or that they built the prison that way, but in mine, I couldn't hit the levers with arrows. Oh. Uh, and I was like, oh fuck! Why is this not letting me do this? Um, I, I think they fixed it. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was a little bit earlier on before they started doing some of the later patches, but she's like, I just want to let the cells open. Why are you being a bastard? Yeah, I, I think we I manually hit every button, but okay. with, with arrows, that would... You can hit them smart. with arrows, typically, yeah. I, I completely um, forgot about that whole thing, like, using arrows during yes. that situation. I was too focused on, like managing my movement to be able uh-huh. to get myself in place for a good like misty step dimension door kind of combo right. to right. get to you get, um yeah i was just gonna say did you get him out of there because thankfully he can just take you with him and bamf yeah. out of there just yeah like wait. so nathan was focused on him with he had lazelle with him and like i went with will got dead i'm like okay i think i've got time to go to the other side so i went into the other side of nathan's trying to get the <laughs> second on him but he was there yeah. with lazelle and himself and so was You'll only take one of one person with them, right? Yeah. Ugh, the other person has to run. Um, in my my second run here, I when uh, Mazora comes up, I'm like, "Hey, you know, I can help you save your dad, but you just gotta sign up forever." And I'm like, "I'm like, fucking no, Ugh. we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this anyway. Screw it." And yep. so, like, I haven't done it yet. But then I was kind of reading something, and I was like, "Yeah, Mazora actively works against you." I'm like, "Oh, great." <laughs> Like this yeah. is gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, in like the tactician mode, you only have five turns, not six. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's fucking wild. There are certain quests that I definitely change the difficulty on. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes, because I I always do whenever I get a new like especially games like these, I always do story on the first because I want to enjoy it, and yeah. um. But you can pop into balanced, multi-class, then pop back into story and keep your multi-class. Uh, yes. Yeah, we just did balance. Um, my second yeah, balance time, is well, good. My third time through, I did the entire Goblin Fortress in like one rest. Oh! That was fun. <laughs> because like, I, I was like, I don't think I'll just bring Halston with me this time. Of course, he's going to kill everything he sees. So it's like, everything's combat. <laughs> Forever. Everything's combat. Yeah, get a giant fucking bear with you. Yeah. 
Yeah. I wish Halson had more content. Yeah, you can definitely tell he was added later. Yep. 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 Oh, someone did a really horny fan art of him. And it's not like naked at all. It's amazing though. I was like, this is really where the hell is that? Let's see if I can find it. I don't even remember who did it, but it was really good. I don't know if you've seen it. It's he's got like honey on him. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, this is so good. This is crazy. Is it is it bear form, Allison? No, 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 no. <laughs> not the honey. No, no. Let me see if I can find it. Um Yeah, I wish he had more content. Poor guy. Oh, there yeah, it is. I, I found it. This makes him super horny if you just even look at him the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> or right. Yeah. Though, to be fair. I was going to full fledged um, relationship with Will, and then, like, I just come over and, like, I check on it. We do a round mm-hmm. of the camp every time before we go to bed. Mm-hmm. And, like, he's like, by the way, <laughs> I'm really into you. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, what now? <laughs> yeah. We've had half of an nice. interaction. What is yeah. going on? <laughs> right. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Though romance scene hot. So I was just like, what the <laughs> is happening? I'm so confused. The bear romance. Oh, scene. his his um where he goes into the portal. That's not a fun fight. That's when I discovered the magic of Moonbeam, so I had a great time. <laughs> Moonbeam, Fireball, I, I had so Gale just standing up there just throwing giant AoE spells at people. I don't think... I don't know if that's going to be... Oh, yeah, I don't have Helsin in my dirge run, so I'm not going to be doing that again. Um, although, I just saved Minthara, and I haven't been to Last Light yet. Okay. Yeah, I don't I know how bringing her along is gonna work in last. Mm, might be. It might be. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I played a. I played a. I did a, an EA test with um a drow, and the goblins just let you walk right through, which is amazing. Yep. Yeah, I, I was drow in our game. <laughs> yes, you just get away with so much shit. I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Oh my god. All right. That's um, that's yeah, twenty five minutes of Baldur's Gate chat. One more thing. Um, I was reading something on Reddit about something, and someone's like, "Yeah." And then I go back to my inn at the, my room at the the inn, and I'm like, "Excuse me." Oh yeah. Room at the inn. What the yep. fuck is this? Nathan and I camped the entire time. We didn't even know what was an option. Even in the city? Oh. Yeah. 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 Even in the city. You mean you can get it outside of the city too? Uh at Shares's Crest, yeah. You can, or the what is it, the elf song. Um No, as soon as you find the elf song, you can get you okay, can you whenever you can the city think there was another one earlier that I missed. No, uh uh-uh. uh. No, no. Elf song. Pay to the two hundred gold I always Yeah. It, I think if you persuade it you get a little bit of a discount, but yeah. Yeah, I got it on my my second run now, but yeah, I was like, nice. how the fuck did we not know about this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what is that building in town? The fucking fireworks building. Fuck that building. Oh my Ugh. god. I'm trying fuck to get in there building. right now. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck yeah, am the I here? Let's just blow it up. 
that's what Nathan did by accident. He oh, blew up the top floor. Pretty much God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to get in right now because um, I failed the check on the toy guy, so I didn't get the, the password. Okay. You can't pick that lock. No, you can't. Mm-mm. I'm like, okay, do I get on top of Karen's house and then, like, dimension door in? And like, well, how do I get to Karen's house? Well, I guess I gotta do Karen's quest first, because if I go upstairs, I'm gonna, upstairs, I'm gonna trigger him, and I want to buy a piece right. of armor before I fucking... <laughs> right, like, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's like a whole series uh, of events. That fucking Karen, like, you go talk uh. to, like, Thrumbo before anything, like, you will, like, where the fuck's Thrumbo? Oh, you're working for him, I'm gonna kill you. Um, right. Oh my god. I need to make some gold and then do that. (laughs) I was constantly broke in the game. I was good until I got to Baldur's Gate. This time I had like 20,000 gold. Fucking hell. And then I got there and I bought a bunch of stuff and now I'm like fucking flat broke. Now you're you're like, okay, now. I think we ended our game with like 15,000 gold. Jesus. I need to pickpocket more people. Now Whoa. I'm spending all of my gold learning spells for my for my dirt Right. Yep. Because I'm like, if I've got a spell scroll that I and I don't know the spell, well, obviously I'm going to learn it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I'm just a fucking like trash goblin and just pick up every fucking thing and sell it. So <laughs> that's where we got most of the gold from. Nathan never picked anything up. <laughs> well, I knew after a while I was like, no, I, I'm not it doesn't matter. It's all gonna get picked up. This is like Kayla uh. deal with it. <laughs> after a while I was like, I hate I hate the idea of like going just over what like three quarters of your um, encumbrance yeah. of your weight and then being yeah. encumbered. And I'm like, I'm not gonna deal yep. with that anymore. It's fine. Especially since he was carrying all the clown body parts for a long time. Oh my god. Like, yeah. Eventually I just heft them off of uh, off, uh, off onto like Carlac or Lazelle, whoever I had with Except me. Except he'd get them all back when he changed characters. Yeah, I should be able to get into anybody's inventory. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Someone will anyway. mod it if they haven't already. Well, that's not going to help us. We're consoles, so. Ah, I forget mm-hmm. that every time. Oh, they was, they was like, man, there's all these really cool mods and stuff. I'm like, this is why you don't look at mods when you play console. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can't have it. <laughs> I'm going to do all of the mods when I play Starfield. All of them. Oh, there's probably a ton already. I think there is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to play Starfield so bad. <laughs> not high on my priorities like as soon as i'm done with my whole fucking hyper fixation on Baldur's gate i've got to play stray gods that's what's next on my list so mm-hmm. oh that's right I yeah i came out like around the same time and i'm like man i feel bad yeah. for the it's a bad time to come yeah. out yeah they bumped it down i think they bumped it like a week or something so they weren't going to come out at the same time yeah um i forgot about that one that's right I muted myself while I said that. We should probably talk no! about that. <laughs> Our actual thing? Yeah, we could do yeah. that. 